And then how do you go out into the world that he has created? How do you use words to describe what you see when you look over the Columbia River Gorge? Or when you stare into the crater of Mount St. Helens? Or when you gaze onto the coast of, of the Oregon coast, onto the Pacific Ocean? How do you use words to capture that majesty? How much less are you going to be able to capture the majesty of Christ? How can you grasp with your mind the fact that Christ has conquered death to give you life. You have this truth, this, this, this amazing, unearthly, beautiful truth in these verses. What do you do with it? I'll tell you what you can do with it. You believe them. The sermon that you're about to hear is from Pastor Paul Borman at Hope Lutheran Church, located in Tigard, Oregon. For more information and for more content, go to hopeintigard.com. Today we are beginning a sermon series on the book of Colossians, and it's a sermon series called Profile, where we are going to explore the profile of Christ. We'll begin today by reading this first text from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. This is the profile of the Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is God's word. There are only a few things that are more iconic than the Michael Jordan. Really, truly, there are only a few things that I think that are more worldwide known than Michael Jordan. I mean, I was part of the generation that grew up and you go down to the lunchroom, and I think you guys will recognize this. You go down to the lunchroom and there is a poster of Michael Jordan on the wall. He's got a basketball under one arm and he's holding a glass of milk in the other. He's got a milk mustache and the caption says, Milk, it does a body good. 
And I was also part of the generation where you go over to your friend's house and you go up to their bedroom and probably 50% of the little boys had a shrine to his airness up in their bedroom. And as I grew up, it was after Michael Jordan's career, but you flip on ESPN and you're just hoping for a rerun of one of his greatest games. I know I'm not alone in this. People care about Michael Jordan still today. His brand that is based on his likeness and image and legacy is worth more than a billion dollars. Everybody wants to be like Mike. I know I did. That's why I was really surprised over the past few years to read and to learn about what Michael Jordan is, is really like and what makes him tick. I, I've always gobbled up every article that I can read about him. And of course, for me, The Last Dance, that um, documentary about the last couple years of his career, that was appointment viewing for me. It surprised me what I learned about him, that, that Michael Jordan as a person is often sad. And, and, and bothered and, and frustrated. Because as great as he was, he always wanted to be greater. He always had to prove himself. That, that became really clear to me as I read an article that was published probably about five years ago um, on the occasion of Michael Jordan's birthday. Uh, this is what it says. It, it tells us about Michael Jordan's push for more. The house is dark. It's almost 1 a.m. And he opens the iPad app that controls the loft's audio-visual system. Every night he does the same thing, and he does it now. Turn the bedroom television to the Western Channel. The cowboy movies will break the darkness, break the silence, allow him to rest. It's just like the old days. Him and pops. Jordan climbs into bed. The film on the screen is unforgiven. He knows every scene. And sometime before the shootout in the saloon, he falls asleep. Everyone wanted to be like Mike. Everyone wanted, just like that movie, to, to find a pair of his old sneakers and put them on and be able to play just like he did. I'm not sure I want to be like Mike anymore. And we can zoom out a little bit further from Michael Jordan and, and look at other um, celebrity athletes. And, and you can see the same drive for more, the same search to have a better satisfaction to prove yourself even more. You, you look at this phenomenon, it's been happening more and more over the past few years, that celebrity athletes, the true greats of their sports, have been retiring and then coming out of retirement several times. You know, an example, that Brett Favre a few years ago, he played for the, the Green Bay Packers, and he was a Hall of Fame quarterback there, and then he retired, and Aaron Rodgers took over, and Brett Favre stayed retired for maybe a couple months, and he waited, played for the Jets, and then he retired, and he played, and he stayed retired for a couple months, and then he came to play for the Vikings, and even though he knew his body was broken, he couldn't not play. It's who he was. He had a drive to keep pushing, to keep 
competing to have more. Outside of football, you can look at at, uh, Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps, he dominated everything in swimming for many years. He dominated the Beijing Olympics, then four years later, the London Olympics, and every, every single one of his interviews, he was saying, this is my last Olympics. I'm not going to be back for the, the next Olympics. And everybody knew he was going to be coming back. He couldn't not compete. He had to have more. And obviously, you can keep on zooming out because it's not just celebrity athletes that have this push for more. We all do. Sometimes we try and and satisfy that push with alcoholism. Sometimes we do it with workaholism. Sometimes we do it with, by being a helicopter parent, sometimes we do it by by seeking more and more romance, we all push for more. We all have this tug to find something that's going to satisfy our souls. And we never find it. We're doing something new today. I put together a set of sermon notes. You can find them inside our church app under rest in Jesus. This is your first note for today. You can find it as a fill in the blank there. All people have something in common. We are searching for more. All people have something in common. We are searching for more. A man named St. Augustine, he wrote what is probably the most significant book on this topic outside of the Bible. It's called The Confessions of St. Augustine. It's really his autobiography. St. Augustine, he was a man who was a philosopher that was converted and he became a Christian. And he wrote this book as a reflection of the human story that he himself experienced. He knew that his human experience was not unique to himself. He knew that the human story is a search. It's a search for something bigger, something truer, something huger, something more significant, something that can fill our soul. And he wrote this book because he wanted to communicate that he had found something to fill his soul put it a lot more accurately, he had found something that had filled his soul for him. Now that human story that St. Augustine wrote about, that life is a search for something more, that human story has an arc that, trans- that goes back to the beginning of time, really goes back, you can trace it through Michael Jordan, you can trace it through um, St. Augustine, you can trace it through the, the Colossian Christians that Paul was writing to, and you can trace it right back to all of our common parents, Adam and Eve. They were created by God, they were created with this tug for more that was meant to be filled by God himself, but the devil came to them and he lied through his teeth and he said, that tug that you have can be filled by eating this piece of fruit. And they bought it. 
And as soon as they tasted that fruit, a vicious cycle began that has continued through all of humanity. That we have this natural tug that God put in us so that we could seek Him, so that we could be filled by Him. And we look and we search for more and we settle for everything that is so much less. That's your second note for today, right here. By nature, we try to find more and we settle for less. By nature, we try to find more and we settle for less. I'm spending a lot of time on this this morning because I think it's really important for us to recognize something about ourselves. That God did create us to have this tug that would pull us towards Him. He created us to have a natural disposition to seek something huger and something more satisfactory for our souls than ourselves. But we need to understand this, that our disposition to seek God has been utterly destroyed by the fall into sin. By nature, we have a new disposition. We have a new way of thinking. Paul describes it like this. This is verse 21. He said, Once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds doing evil deeds. This is where we are at without Christ. Alienated from God. Enemies of Him by nature. You notice here that that Paul, he's describing the biggest problem that we have. You notice here that he does not describe a singular sin that we've committed. He does not point to the sins that we've committed as being the biggest problem that we have. Rather, the biggest problem that we have is that by nature, we're enemies of God. Because of the fall into sin, that tug that we had to be filled with God has been so utterly destroyed that by nature, we're going to seek to fill ourselves with everything except God. That's the story of humanity. And Paul brings that story forward for us even as Christians. You know, Paul knew who he was writing to. He was writing to the Christian church in Colossae. And I know who I'm preaching to here this morning. I'm preaching to a Christian church here in Tigard, a church called Hope in Tigard. I know that I'm preaching to Christians, but Paul is bringing up this really sad history so that we as Christians can know that we still struggle with this human nature. So that we, as Christians, can know that even though we know Christ, we love Him, we are still going to have all these vestiges, these leftovers of that broken way of thinking. And we need to know this about ourselves, that by nature, that is going to be the most natural way for us to think. To try and fill ourselves with everything except Christ. You know, I've been coming to think of of myself as a Christian like this. Maybe it'll be helpful to you too. I think of myself as a recovering atheist because that's who I am. I'm a man who, who loves my Lord. I love my Savior Jesus. I know Him. I study His Word to get to know Him more and more so that I can see His saving grace in my life. 
But I still know that by nature, I'm going to be wanting to try and fill myself with everything except him. As recovering atheists, what we do is every single day we are learning to see our lives more and more according to what God has done. Every single day, we're learning more and more how to live in the reality of what God has done. That's your next note, by the way. We are people who love Jesus, but we are still learning to see our lives in his light. And I promise you, all of this is leading towards the gospel here. I'm so excited to share it with you. Um, We all know that we have this tug towards something more in our lives, something that can fill our souls. And Paul has reminded us that by nature, we are going to try and answer that tug and fill that search with everything except Jesus. And that's why Paul takes the time in his letter to answer our search and to bowl us over with the profile of Christ, a description of the Christ who answers our search for something more. I'm so excited to share this with you again. I'm going to read verses 15 through 18 again here. You can open your church app. The words are are printed there right for you. Think of these verses as an avalanche that sweeps down upon you. You don't have any power against it. Think of it as a tsunami that comes and floods the recesses of your heart with the truth about Christ, the saving truth about Him. Think about this as as an earthquake that shakes your foundation and shakes you to something more secure. This is Christ. This is what Paul says. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You know, I have no idea. I have no idea how to talk about this. I have no idea how to explore with you and how to use words to describe what Christ is here. I mean, how do you do that? How do you talk about a being like that? How do you talk a being that that is so high, so powerful, so mighty, so loving, so merciful? How do you describe him with words? And then how do you appreciate the fact that he has created everything visible that you see and he's also created everything visible. He's created everything on earth and he's also created everything in heaven. How do you appreciate that fact? And then how do you go out into the world that he has created? How do you use words to describe what you see when you look over the Columbia River Gorge? 
Or when you stare into the crater of Mount St. Helens, or when you gaze onto the coast of, of the Oregon coast, onto the Pacific Ocean, how do you use words to capture that majesty? How much less are you going to be able to capture the majesty of Christ? How can you grasp with your mind the fact that Christ has conquered death to give you life? How do you do that? You have this truth, this, this, this amazing, unearthly, beautiful truth in these verses. What do you do with them? I'll tell you what you can do with them. You believe them. And you stop wondering. And you stop your search for more and you, try to st and you stop trying to find fulfillment and contentment and satisfaction in anything except Christ. And you make the being that fits this profile your God and to put it a lot better, you believe that this being, this God has made himself your God. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God wants you to know that you are his and that he's yours. That's what that word reconcile means. He wants you to know that you are reconciled. He wants you to know that you are his and he is yours. And Paul wants you to know that too. This is kind of a cool thing in the Greek language. Paul invented a word here. He coined a new term to describe this reconciliation. That through Christ we have with God. We have so much ancient Greek language that we can comb our way through. It doesn't appear anywhere before right here. Paul coined a term so that you could know beyond any shadow of a doubt that the great everything, the creator of heaven and earth, who made everything visible and invisible, he is yours and you are his. Paul wrote this, that God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. I'm praying that this comes home for you today in a big way, that the vicious cycle of searching for more and settling for less that began in the Garden of Eden has effectively come to an end. I pray that comes home for you so that that search for something big enough, for something satisfactory enough and important enough so that that search can be done. This is your last note for today. What does the profile of Christ mean for us? Our search for more is over. Our search for more is over. You know what I've really learned about Michael Jordan? 
over the last few years. I always wanted to be like Mike. I found out that I am like Mike. We're both kids of Adam and Eve. We both have a limitless potential for being able to search for more in all the wrong places. And that's what we do without the gospel. And then the gospel comes to us. And it tells us that we have been found and that we have been reconciled to Christ, that we are his and he is ours, that in Christ we can rest from searching because we have found, we have been found in the thing, the only thing that truly fills. Jesus Christ. Or if you like metaphors, you can know that you can finally take off your sneakers and put them up on a shelf. You don't have to win any more NBA championships to prove anything. Or if you want to hear it in plain language, this is what St. Augustine wrote. He said, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you.